The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with Wings Over New Zealand, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from the latest news to historic happenings around New Zealand and the world. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird restorers, warbird owners, historians, modelers, authors, photographers, and many, many others. Sign up to Wings Over New Zealand now. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great supporters had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota, and fly into the past. It's an experience you will never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Once again, I'm joined by Noel Cruz. Hi, Noel. Hello, Dave. How are you doing? Good, good. It's been a while. It has, it has. It's good to have you back. Yeah, well, I haven't been anywhere, actually. I just haven't had time to talk to you. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've been playing with aeroplanes, so mm. we can't blame you for that. No, 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 no. Um, okay. Where do we start with this lot? Well, uh, at the end of the last episode, we uh, you just got posted to the uh, aircraft depot. Uh, okay. Yes. Um, I just left Butterworth and I had been expecting to be posted to a fighter combat instructor's course. That's, that's right. right. That's right. I'd made it to category A fighter pilot, etc., and my flight commanders all had recommended me for the course. As it turned out, and I didn't realise this at the time, they only run an FCI course, as it's called, once every two years. It's about a three month course. And I was out of step, I was the wrong year. Ah. I, didn't, I wasn't even aware of this at the time, I was just expecting it would come through and of course it didn't come through and I got posted to number three aircraft depot at the RAAF base at Amberley, which is west of Brisbane, right? Or Ipswich actually, about 30 odd miles out of Brisbane, at the Teston Ferry flight. I'd never even heard of this place and I thought, oh my god, what is this? I'm being sent to Coventry. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done wrong? This sounds, this sounds like absolutely terrible thing. Anyway, so I had to pack up and, uh, and move home. And of course, that was a big culture shock too. This is um, January 1968 this occurred. Yep. So I'm now all 24 years of age. I have a young wife. I have a brand new daughter, my daughter Katrina, who was not even one at that stage. Yep. And of course, I've been married up in Butterworth only for the half of the tour. I went home and got married and came back up again. Yep. And um, we just lived the life of Riley up there because you know, the, the White Rye still existed. So we had a two-story house on the side of a hill overlooking the Straits of Malacca with a cook, an armour, a third share of a gardener. And it was just, you know, hog heaven. Yeah, nice. We wind up in Ipswich, <laughs> <laughs> Brisbane, <laughs> in the 60s. And the only house I could find to live in was this hovel with a tin in the backyard. <laughs> and that was almost instant divorce right there, I can tell you. It really strained things. Of course, my, my poor wife just went, ah, what have you done? <laughs> so, you know, there was a bit of adjustment just coming home to reality after living up there. I was a perpetual honeymoon for nearly 18 months or so, coming back to reality. Anyway, I then uh, fronted up to the Air Force Base at, at, uh, at Amberley. And the first person I met, of course, was my new commanding officer, who was a guy named James Rollins, Jim Rollins, who was a group captain at the time, and I didn't know much about him at all, but he was wearing pilot's wings. And in those days, they did have the odd engineer, because now, by now he was classified as an engineer, a very senior engineer. Yep. They did have the few flying engineers, which go way back. But in fact, as I learnt later on, he was the reverse. He was a pilot initially okay. and then became an engineer. All right. I'll talk a bit more about him later because as it turned out, he was one of the more significant men, people in my life as a mentor and a friend and went way beyond my tour just at, at the aircraft depot. And he took me down and here was this Nissan hut on the side of the, of the, of the tarmac with uh, a little office at the end of it, no bigger than the lounge room we're sitting in now, with two desks, three desks actually. One was mine and the other two were occupied by the Canberra test crew, because okay. they also 
um, were there, a guy named uh, Jeff Walker and Brian Hawthorne was the navigator. Now the deal was there were these two huge hangars, uh, big igloo hangars, uh, in which you could fit four or five Canberra bombers and about a dozen sabres. One was a sabre hangar, one was the Canberra hangar. And what they did there was what they called the E-level servicing. In the Air Force they, they letter their, their service, I may have mentioned this, A, B, C, D, E, A is sort of the pre-flight, B is uh, something done by the squadron and so on. C is the local maintenance depot, but the E-servicing is where you rip the airplane completely apart, about every thousand hours it happens or some other date factor. Rip it apart down to its basic components, polish, clean or replace anything that's got any sort of wear and rebuild it. So it's almost like an aircraft factory. I mean, the airplanes are stripped down to their, just their skeleton and then rebuilt. Yep. A Sabre would be in the, that for a couple of months, having this done with teams of guys. They had, I suppose, a hundred more people in each, in the Sabre hangar, probably more in the Canberra hangar because it was a bigger, more complex airplane. And so, and a brand spanking new airplane would come out the door at the other end. Okay. And my job was then to test flight, make sure I put it back together properly. And the average was about one Sabre a week. Okay. Okay, would, would pop out the door. So, so how, how many in the hangar at a time, sort of thing? Oh, six or eight. Okay. Yeah. Probably uh, probably more about six, six uh, probably a week and a half to two weeks, because I would spend then about three or four days doing the test flight. Theoretically, you could do the entire test flight in the Sabre in one, one flight, yeah. if it all worked. Yeah. Um, I was warned not to expect to do that because there would be little things. And not only that, I snuck in a bit of extra so I could have a fly too. <laughs> yeah. There was always the extra hour in these absolutely immaculate brand new aeroplanes before I took them back. Because my job then was to take the brand new aeroplane and fly it down to Williamtown Air Base, which is the fighter base. Yep. And then pick up the next one to e-servicing. Okay. And then fly it back up again. And this in itself was quite an adventure. Because most of the aeroplanes, if you can imagine it, here's these people who've been maintaining these aeroplanes and finally it's to go away to be fixed up completely. Yep. But just last week, you put a new widget on it. Are you going to let this brand new widget, you've just been on it for a few days, vanish? No, no, no. They take the new one off and put the old one back on again. Yep. So I yep. was winding up ferrying these airplanes with mostly time expired parts. <laughs> 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 and, and some of them were real dogs, I can tell you. They sort of rattle and creak their way into the air, only to come back totally reborn a few months later. So that's what it was really all about. I'm getting off the track already uh, a little bit. But um, the, the, I, I had a whole number of adventures, if you like, I can call it that, both in the ferrying of the aeroplanes from Williamtown up to, up to Ambley, and then, of course, in the test flying thing itself. Now, the test profile of the Sabre, uh, since I'd already done a whole bunch of, you know, sort of maintenance test flying at, uh, at Budworth, yep. But this was far more detailed, of course, because you had a lot of systems checks and all that sort of stuff, most of which just worked. And the profile, basically, was you had to do some high-level stuff, um, check its MAC trim by diving it as fast as it would go and all that sort of stuff, but then checking that all the systems worked. Uh, and, and that's where it really sort of started to get interesting. But also, I might add... Um, on these ferry flights, before I get the actual test flying, the ferry flights themselves introduced me to something that I'd never encountered before. Because right now, suddenly I'm not a fighter pilot anymore. Because as a fighter pilot, you're mostly mentally occupied with outmaneuvering the other guy and using the airplane as a weapon. Yep. Suddenly, here I am by myself. I'm the only fighter pilot on Ambly Air Base, and it's got bomber pilots everywhere. Yep. Yep. And I hardly ever used to talk to bomber pilots because they just flew targets as far as I was concerned. <laughs> And navigators, you never talk to a navigator. Oh, no. <laughs> there was a joke going around at the time, which was um, very, very politically incorrect by today's standards, of course. But uh, we used to say that the only reason there was a navigator and a bomber is if they, the pilot crashed it in the desert, he had something to eat. <laughs> I had a few navigators throw drinks at me over that one. <laughs> anyway, I, I digress. So here I am, this lonely little fighter pilot on my corner of the airfield. But also, when I start to ferry these aeroplanes down south, I'm now suddenly encountering civilian airspace. I mean, in, in Malaya, there was military everywhere. And even when I was flying initially at Williamtown, Williamtown was sufficiently removed from Sydney that you never really encountered it until you're above it. Because yeah. when you go back to the early 60s, the top of Class A airspace, as it's called, was 21,000 feet. Airlines didn't go any higher than that. You know, right. the, the Vickers Viscounts used to cruise at 15 to 18,000 feet. 
By the time I got back from Butterworth, I think they jacked it up to about 28,000 feet. Lockheed Electras and so forth were yeah. the king of the skies in those days. So they were just way beneath us in all respects. Because <laughs> we just go up to 40,000 feet and sit up there and look down on the world. Right. International Airlines was starting to come along with their DC-8s and all that sort of stuff. They didn't worry me. But here I was operating out of an airfield which wasn't too far from Eagle Farm, the Brisbane. And of course I'm heading south and airliners head south. So I had to sort of merge with their traffic. Right. And by then, of course, they'd introduced the Boeing 727, a trijet, which used to operate up to about 35,000 feet. So it was up in my airspace, you know, how dare they come up to this high? <laughs> but also we were both on climb. And of course, ferrying a Sabre from Amberley to Williamtown was about a 55 minute flight. Okay. Now, and we didn't carry tanks. They were a completely clean airplane. No, no missile pylons, no ferry tanks. They were just a complete clean skin airplane, which normally had a safe endurance of 50 minutes. Now, when we use them sort of in training purposes, but if you could just get them, set them up in the cruise and, and get them right, you get an extra five minutes. So you were always planning to arrive at Williamtown with about 10 minutes worth of fuel. Okay. So in, in order to ensure that this happened without any problems, any holdups, we'd get a airways clearance before you started the engine. So you get on the tower and say, right, I'm ready to start, request my airways clearance. And you come through a few minutes later and say, right, you're cleared. So you hit the start button, taxi out, psst, go, straight line, as fast as you could up to 40, 42,000 feet and away. On this particular day, very early in the piece, I taxied out, got my start clearance, taxied out, called ready and the man in the tower said oh, I just had a call they, they want you to divert via such and such. I said negative um, ready um, and the, the controller didn't quite know what to do I said look I'm going to take off because I'm you know I'm burning gas here and I can't afford it oh okay clear take off but call them immediately so I got airborne went across to the the Brisbane radar people and said you know I'm airborne I'm direct tracked I oh no we'd like you to divert via Warwick because we have a 727 I said we'll divert the 727 what? <laughs> so there was my first conflict. I'm saying, I'm single pilot, single jet, um, uh, on, on absolute minimum fuel. I'm going direct. I'm on direct climb to 40,000 feet. I don't care what you do, but get out of my way. That was sort of my phrase. <laughs> and this air traffic controller, who up until this point must have thought he was God, because he's now directing these jets, had this obnoxious little jet pilot telling me to bugger off. <laughs> and he finally came and said, but you know, you're going to be in conflict. I said, what do you mean by conflict? Well, you'll be within five miles. I said, is that all? <laughs> I said, point him out to me, I'll miss him. And sure enough, over here is this seven, I outclimbed him, no problem at all, I was way above him, nowhere near him. But yeah, so I thought, who are these people that are starting to encroach on my airspace? <laughs> so that began my love-hate relationship with air traffic controllers. <laughs> <laughs> they never did that again. I don't know whether they got to know my voice, but I've got a clearance and zoom. And it was a good thing because you, you literally got there with 10 minutes worth of fuel. And quite often you get there and it was cloudy, so you had to do an instrument approach. Yeah. But it was just part of the deal, just part of the deal. And of course, ferrying these uh, airplanes back again wasn't the problem because Williamtown was sufficiently removed from, uh, the, from the controlled airspace that you could be up and above it before you sort of merge with it and, uh, and got in there. So the problem coming northbound was just the, the geriatric old airplanes you had as opposed to the pristine jets on the way south. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, just while we're talking about the ferry flights, I remember one particular airplane I had, it just seemed to perform so much better than all the others in terms of trim and everything, and it just hummed along really well. And it was one of those crystal clear days where its forecast was great at each end, so I thought, well, I wonder how fast I can get this going. I got my direct clearance, so I went up there, I set maximum continuous power, and it settled down straight and level at 42,000 feet at Mach 0.92. So 92% the speed of sound. Now, we're talking about 968 here, yeah, it's yeah. still pretty hot. Yeah. And I made it from wheels up to, from lift off to touchdown in 45 minutes. Now I reckon at the time that was the speed record. <laughs> Never confirmed and it's long since been you know, eclipsed by all these modern supersonic jets. But yeah, it was, a, and it was just smooth as silk. You sat up there and she just went like a bullet. Really cool. So there was some good stuff to be done and some interesting people to talk to. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Okay. By this stage, of course, and during this whole initial period, um, Jim Rollins, uh, who was it turned out, uh, as I learned very quickly, was a, um, a pilot's pilot. And um, I was the only fighter pilot on the airfield, so he kind of took a shine to me from a, almost a fatherly point of view. We used to drink at the bar and he'd start telling me stories, and I can remember, I don't know how, but I, I remember being down in his office once and he showed me his logbook. And this is when I suddenly realised, you know, who is this man? 
Um, and just a very quick sidebar to tell you a little bit about this guy's background. He, uh, he joined the Royal, I think it was the Royal Australian Air Force, seconded to the Royal Air Force during World War II when he was 19. And he wound up being a Lancaster Pathfinder pilot okay. at the age of about 22, yep. which is pretty hot. In the very latter stages of World War II, 1945, and he lost his airplane and his entire crew. They were doing their thing over Berlin, one of those thousand bomber raids over Berlin. And he said he was below them, you know, dropping flares and calling shot and all the rest of it. And suddenly there was an almighty explosion which stunned him. And when he sort of recovered from that, after a few seconds, realized he was in freefall. Wow. So he grasped his D-ring, which was still there, and he pulled it and his parachute opened. And he said he had no idea what happened. He said they were obviously hit by something, either a, a shell from below or a bomb from above, because they were below like a thousand bomber raids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never saw his airplane or the rest of his crew again. They were just you know, immolated. Wow. He floated down into the, the suburbs of Berlin. He said, that's when it got really dangerous, because now he is a, an RAF uniformed person on the ground in the middle of a thousand bomber raid. <laughs> all he said, all he could do was find a hole and crawl in and, and hope he wouldn't get hit, which he didn't. Of course, after the raid was over, he was quickly found and arrested and thrown into a prison. But it was the last six months of the war. So he said, uh, they took care of me because they knew they were screwed. <laughs> the military side, at least. So they didn't, you know, so he said, I had a very comfortable time. Yeah. When the war was over, uh, rather than being demobilised, he stayed in England. I think he came back to Australia and then organised. But by the early 50s, he is now uh, Empire Test Pilot at oh, Farnborough. Right. Yeah, this is where it gets really interesting. In those Helkian days where they built experimental prototypes for everything. everything yeah. And I looked through his logbook and he's flown the DH-108, which is the little tailless swallow, which yeah. Jeffrey de Havilland was killed in trying to set a speed record. And I said to him, the DH-108, I said, not many people flew them. He said, no, only seven of us. <laughs> he was one. He flew the prototype Hawker Hunter on its third flight. Wow. Okay. Now, I remember him talking about that. And he said, yes, it was a really slick airplane, but it had no speed brakes. And he remembered when he landed, he taxied and it was all white with a big P on the side. And so Sidney Cam was there to meet him, big, tall, slim guy. And he, and he said, well, James, you know, what do you think of it? And he said, well, so Sidney, um, <clears throat> it goes like stink, but you can't stop it. <laughs> And so Sydney said, I build airplanes to go, laddie, not to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Later on, of course, when the Hunter got to squadron service, um, the pilot said, hey, we need a brake to be able to st slow down quickly and all the rest of it. And even to the latest model Hunter, you look at the one out at Tauranga right now, the speed brake is a big panel tacked on underneath the yep. fuselage. It was never an integral part of the design because so Sydney wanted to stop. <laughs> so we had all these wonderful stories about test flying. So he was not just an engineering boss. I'm there as a test pilot, but here's like the king of test pilots. So he started to feed me information about how to do it, how airplanes work, because right. at this point, as I said a moment ago, I was more, my career had been being a fighter pilot, not so much the machine. Yes, you understood how it worked to the extent that you had to, but not the details or some of the subtleties. Um, and so we used to have these wonderful discussions about why it was designed this way and not that way and why the tails this way and where the intake geometry is like that and so i really started to get to know my airplane yeah, yeah. i already had over a thousand hours but there's things about it that i was really starting to learn and of course between uh, flights sometimes there'd be a week where i didn't get to fly i just wander into the hangar and here was all these airplanes in various stages of assembly and disassembly i'd wander around talk to the troops and look at the bits so i really really got to know the airplane quite thoroughly yeah. and that was that was good for a number of reasons. I just when I suddenly realised I had a, uh, a bent for this. I enjoyed it, but also it was handy when I actually got to test flight to come back and talk to the actual guy and say, you remember that thing that we talked about? I don't think it was on properly this time. <laughs> and uh, so I started to really enjoy this job of, of being a test pilot, even though I was the only you know, lone little petunia in the onion patch there. Of course, in the other hangar, they had all these Canberra bombers. I think they fitted about four or five of those. And Jeff and Brian were the, the test crew doing a similar thing with those, but yeah. they... The test program on the Canberra bomber was four or five flights because there's so much more complexity in these things with multi-engines and tanks and things with a big British aeroplane with all sorts of quirks. Yep. That didn't worry me at all. I got to have a ride in one. Jeff, I think, took me took me for a fly when I first got there just to show me the area. Pardon me. And uh, they didn't concern me too much at all initially. <coughs> As it turned out, <coughs> pardon me, they concerned me greatly. Shortly thereafter, I'm going to cough for a moment here. Yep. 
But let me just get back to the main theme here. Um, in the test flight program itself, this is where I've had some interesting encounters with I say the engineering aspects and also just the physiological aspects of the flight and the high altitude flight. Um, for instance, in the first month I was there, I had an engine failure. Now, I'd only okay. ever had one in my entire career prior to that. I mentioned it to you up in Butterworth. Yeah. And I can't remember exactly what caused it, but it was only, I was only airborne for about 20 minutes or so, and the engine started to malfunction. It wasn't actually a total failure, I must admit. It was sort of I had a hydraulic pressure problems and things, and it was starting to surge and carry on. The bleed valves were cut, cutting in when they shouldn't have, so I thought, this is no good, so I backed it right off and came back and land. <clears throat> so it was a forced landing with partial power, if you like. And of course, that's when I realised that Jim, Jim Rollins was particularly interested in all of this, because as soon as I taxied in, there he was to meet me to talk about it. Right. And I thought, you know, initially this is the headmaster coming to wrap me over the knuckles, but no, quite the reverse. What happened, Noel? What did you do about it? Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Have you tried? Did you try this? Yes. Oh, yeah. And so we'd have this long discussion about the well, so I, I was learning. He was, you know, he was this really serious mentor. But then the next one was the following month. So here I am. I've been there two months. I'm into my second engine failure. And this one was an absolute classic. And it was my fault. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was my, sort of my fault. You might recall, I. A little while back, I spoke to you about this Sidewinder panel, which was my nemesis. Yes. And yeah. I flew across Singapore Harbour with a live bomb because of this switch. <laughs> yep. Well, there was another switch on the Sidewinder panel. I may have mentioned this also. It's called the fuel dip switch. You turn this on. And what it does, because Sidewinder missiles are big five-inch diameter, two-meter-long rockets, and they go zooming off the, 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 the pylon quite close to the fuselage. And by the time... the, the, the the, the tip of the, the missile is even past the nose of the airplane. It's already supersonic. I mean, you're launching from about Mach 0.85 or so. Yeah. And this thing goes to about Mach 1.8 over launch speed. So it's accelerating like all stinks. So it's generating its own shockwave. So the shockwave would go down the intake and disturb the airflow and cause a compressor surge. Right, right. And the simple way to solve this was to have the, thr the engine decelerating momentarily as the shockwave hit. And all this fuel dip switch was, was a restrictor which went into the fuel line somehow in, in the bowels of the thing. So when you launch the missile, it automatically throttled the engine back about 300 RPM. Yep. So you sit there and you press the button and whoosh, and you pick up again. That was all it was. Yep. <clears throat> so part of the test flight program was simply to, I didn't work carrying the missile, but turn the fuel dip switch on and just press the missile button. And the thing would throttle back and come back up again. Well, I'm up at 40,000 feet. <clears throat> having done a few other tests and the next thing to do was a, was a Mac run um, from that height. I'll talk about what else happened on that particular occasion uh, as well in a moment. But I hit the button and the engine throttled back and didn't come back up again. Ah. I thought, oh, that's curious. So I flicked the switch off and it just sat there. So instead of sitting at about 8,100 RPM, because you do this on full throttle simulating the fact that you're in combat, and it came back to about 7,800 revs and didn't go back up again. Now at 40,000 feet, if you close the throttle, the engine idle is quite high because the air is so thin. On the ground, the saber engine would idle at about 3,000 RPM, but at altitude about 5,500 RPM, right? Yeah. Because the air is so thin, it just needs more air to keep the, the fires lit. And I foolishly thought, I wonder if the engine would idle. Why I thought that, I don't know. But anyway, so I closed the throttle to see if the engine would idle. Guess what? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> With the idle restriction and the fuel dip restriction, the engine just died. Oh, back up. <laughs> so, of course, I hit the hot relight button and the whole thing, and no, it just said, sorry, not going to. So here I am. I'm sitting over a place called Redland Bay, which is just off the coast south of Brisbane, <clears throat> near um, the island, the Stradbroke Island. It's only about 25 miles or so from, from Amberley Air Base. It's an absolute 8-8 blue day, pristine day, not a cloud in the universe. There's no wind. Amberley Air Base has an 11,000 foot long runway. And from this height, I can glide 100 miles. I've only got 25 miles to go. So I, I glide back over the top of Amberley Air Base and I'm still at 
30 odd thousand feet <laughs> and I'm looking down and there's a high speed approach version and there's a low speed approach version of a force landing where you can lower those and go much faster to get down. Well I didn't do that and I'll tell you why in a moment with another problem, so there's another problem going on here too. <clears throat> so I just glid around and around in circles, slowly coming down and all I can think of is you can't stuff this up, boy. I mean, there's just no excuses for <laughs> stuffing this up at all. <laughs> you couldn't have wanted it for better conditions. Anyway, as it turned out, I didn't stuff it up. I touched down right and rolled out. And there was Jim to meet me. <laughs> what did you do, son? Well, well, yeah, he said, oh, dear. He said, no, 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 you shouldn't have done that. You know, the fuel system works this way. If you kept the power up, it would have purged through it, and you could have yeah, just worked the brakes against the power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all, once he said it, it was all self-evident. I'm yeah. thinking, oh, God, what does this man think of me? I'm so stupid. <laughs> but then he said to me, he said, why did you not let us know till so late? He said, I didn't get the word until you were you know, coming down through 10,000 feet. And I explained to him why, and I'm about to explain to you guys why, because another phenomena occurred, which I had not realized. Part of the reason we climbed to this altitude was to test the pressurization system, or the pressurization warning system, actually, which was pretty simple. It's this huge Claxton horn mounted somewhere behind your head, which if we let it off in this room now, would deafen you for, for 10 minutes. I mean, it, it would lift the roof. It's incredibly loud. Yeah because the air is so thin up there. And that's all very well, you can say this, but you, and people can throw you numbers, and say, oh, the air pressure is such and such, but with that, you've got to actually experience what it's like. Yeah. yeah. So the profile was, you'd climb to 40,000 feet, and there was two pressurization settings on the saber. Let me just quickly describe uh, what I'm getting at here, uh, for a bit technical for the technical listeners here. Um, <clears throat> atmospheric pressure at sea level is 14.7 pound per square inch, okay? The, um, the human lung requires um, the partial pressure of oxygen to be no less than about two and a half pounds per square inch. Okay, so the partial pressure of oxygen at sea level is about 3.6 psi. By the time you get to 10,000 feet, atmospheric pressure has dropped such that the partial pressure, in other words, just the, if, if that 20% of the oxygen was there by itself, would be 2.7. That is why people can go to 10,000 feet and back down again, as much as like no oxygen deprivation problems at all, and that is why in a light aeroplane you're limited to 10,000 feet. Yes. <clears throat> okay. We uh, had a pressurization system which put a 5.5 psi overpressure into the cabin, which means when you were flying at 40,000 feet, the cabin altitude was around about 18 or 20,000 feet, so we we're still breathing a mi an enhanced mixture of oxygen. Yeah. We had a thing called a diluted demand regulator, didn't actually give you, or it could, but up to about 40,000 feet, didn't give you extra pressure. What it did is you breathed normal air, cabin air, literally, but it then added an extra amount of oxygen. So as you got higher and higher, the percentage of oxygen in the air you're breathing got greater and greater. So the partial pressure was maintained yes. at 2.75, 10,000 foot equivalent. So by the time you're cruising around at 40,000 feet, you have a cabin altitude of say 20, but your lungs think they're at 10. With me? Yes. Yep, right. Totally. And of course, then if you have a decompression, the oxygen is supposed to immediately increase. A little diaphragm in there which measures the, the, the actual pressure uh, inside the cabin. So, of course, to test all of this, we used to climb to 40,000 feet and then we'd select the cabin pressurization off. However, the good news was there was two selections. We had a 5.5 selection and a 2.75 selection. That was the combat setting. Okay designed by the original North American pilots for the original F-86s, because they figured that if you went into combat fully pressurized and got a bolt through the canopy, the explosive decompression would debilitate you. But if you were already back on 2.75, you could soldier through. <clears throat> well, that's very fine if you're flying in the early 86 and, and, and Korean environment where they're still firing 0.5 machine gun bolts at each other. Yeah. It was kind of redundant when you're up against a 30 millimeter cannon shell that we were carrying. <laughs> if one of them came to the cockpit, your last problem was the decompression because <laughs> it was gonna blow your head off. <laughs> so I never ever used the 2.75 setting ever. We just flew in five and a half. Okay, so the deal was you get to 40,000 feet and you'd squeeze as much area out of your body as you could, breathing out and squeezing, etc., And then you'd select from five to 2.75 and boom. The sudden drop of only you know, two and a half psi 
10 gallons of air would come out every orifice in your body. Wow. And some that you hadn't thought you had. had. (laughs) Sinuses, nose, ears, mouth, the lower end significantly. (laughs) You better have had a good breakfast. (laughs) So you'd sit there for about two or three minutes shaking yourself going, whoa. And you're only halfway. And then you'd select it to off completely, thinking by now there can be no more air in my body. Wrong. An equal amount of air would come out all the orify again. <laughs> really, it was like being in a ring. It was just rang you out. So finally, after about five or six minutes of recovering from this, you then sat there uh, at 40,000 feet, completely decompressed. By now, of course, the regulator's pumping 100% oxygen, and you can check that on the regulator as part of the test. Yeah. But also by now, this horn should be blaring in your ear because it's designed to go off at 38,000 feet. Yeah. And of course, normally it did. Okay. So here I am on this test flight where I lost the engine. So before I even done this fuel dip test, I've done the pressurization test. Okay. Yeah. So I'm now sitting at 40,000 feet with this horn. I won't say blaring. On the ground, it blared. Up there, it was just in the background, yeah. loud enough to hear. Huh? Yeah. And, uh, and of course, I have the engine failure problem, so I'm gliding home. So having pointed towards home, I then hit the button to tell the tower that you know, like I'm, I'm a glider. And I can't hear anything. Now, the Sabre being a single cockpit airplane doesn't have an intercom, so you don't normally, can't normally talk to yourself, no. or at least hear yourself when you're talking to yourself. And uh, so the only time you can hear yourself is when you transmit, you then get the side tone from the radio into the earphones, yep. so you know when you're transmitting. So I hit the button and, and start my, making my, my mayday call, and I can't hear a thing. That's odd. What's wrong with the radio? But I've got the little red light on the radio, sorry, it's transmitting, but I'm just not hearing. So I yell can't hear a thing. I cannot even hear the horn behind me through the microphone in my earphones. And it was then I suddenly realized how thin the air was. Because I'm sitting there with this oxygen mask on with a microphone, admittedly it was only an old dynamic style mic, about an inch in front of my mouth. Yep. And there was not enough air in there, air pressure. There was oxygen actually, but oxygen pressure, enough to breathe, but not enough to transmit the sound from my mouth to the microphone. Wow. And that's what I, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought, <laughs> holy crap. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like being in outer space. And all, from a human body point of view, it almost was. Yeah. It wasn't until I was down past about 25,000 feet that I could actually talk. And then I was yelling into the microphone to tell them when I was coming home. That's why I glid down very slowly because I wasn't quite sure whether they got the message properly. So rather than die, I didn't want to arrive unannounced with no engine. Yeah. And that's when I started realizing my God, there's, there's a lot more to this than I'd even realised, having experienced this. And it was quite eerie. You felt completely alone. You, the air was so thin you couldn't even talk. Yeah. So, anyway, I finally landed and I discussed all of this with Jim. And he said, oh, yeah, the air's pretty thin. I think, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, you, 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 um, you, uh, you can read all the numbers, but until you actually experience this yourself, you just don't understand how thin it is. This is really fascinating stuff. The average person wouldn't even think about this. Neither did I. Yeah. Apart from, no, yeah, I, I could rattle off, the, oh, yeah, this pressure and that, high those I've just done, yeah? yeah. 2.75 and partial pressure, blah, blah, blah. The whole idea, of course, is when you've got above 40,000 feet, if you had to, this regulator would then start to actually uh, give you pressure. The whole deal is that you had to maintain a 2.75 psi pressure of oxygen in the lungs. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now, just as a complete aside, a lot of people look at these photographs of guys doing spacewalks and so forth out of the, the space shuttle or whatever and they think they're in a full you know, zero feet environment no they're not the pressure inside that suit is only 2.75 because okay. it flows into the helmet and it's of course pure oxygen that's all they're in yep. Yep. when they're walking around on the moon their lungs I think they're at 10,000 feet only but the, the pressure on the rest of their body is only 2.75 right. that's all it is in the, that's what they live in they live in this environment the whole time right. Okay. That is why, now going we're really aside here, you may remember the, the first Apollo uh, disaster with Apollo 1 on the, on the launch pad. Yep. They were doing a leak test, okay? Yes. And they wanted to see if there was any leaks when they went to 2.5 psi above environmental pressure. Now in space, that means you're 2.5 psi inside and zero outside. Yep. But on the ground, that means you're 2.5 psi above 15 psi. So they had 16, 17 and a half psi of pure oxygen wow. inside that thing. Right. So the tiniest little spark just exploded. Yeah. It was like inside a pressure cooker. Yeah, yeah. Huh? 
and I think the temperature went to two and a half thousand degrees and it went to about 15 or 70 atmospheres like that. Yeah. It actually blew a hole through the side. Everyone thinks the hatch came off. The hatch didn't come off that spacecraft. It blew a hole in it. Now that same Velcro ignited spark in space wouldn't have been a problem at all. Right. Because at, two, at a real pressure of only two and a half, it would have just you know, less than here. It would have just gone smolder. They right. could have stubbed it, it out with their thumb. Yeah, just been a normal spark. Yeah. 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 Right, and uh, and that, that is why it was so disastrous. So, they, so again, just to finish that story, of course, they then said, well, hey, we can't have this on the ground. So they then flooded the, the cabin with nitrogen. So when they launched them, they actually were, had the helmets on and they were breathing 100% oxygen, but the cabin was full of nitrogen. Right. It wasn't until they got into space where they dumped the nitrogen, replaced the nitrogen with oxygen, they could take the helmets off. Right, right. Yeah, and that got around that potential problem. Ah, okay. Because uh, yeah. right. oxygen is fairly... You know, noxious gas when you add sparks to it yeah. under high pressure. Yeah, yeah. That was not the plot, the problem when I was at 40,000 feet up there. I couldn't even talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, um, just to go on a really big tangent here, mm -hmm. but you're um, very clued up on all this stuff, so I thought I'd ask. Uh, just recently I, I read the um, uh, Eddie Rickenbacker book, um, oh. Fighting the Flying Circus, mm -hmm. and he talks about those guys, they're an open cockpit aircraft, yeah. and they were going up to like 18,000, 20,000 yeah. feet. And I never had realised that they went that high in combat. And yes, they did. They so went how the hell did those guys survive? Some of, them, some of them didn't, seriously. And, and um, the, apart from nearly freezing to death, they were flying hypoxic the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Now, 18,000 feet is an interesting figure you chose. I remember when I did my first decompression training, we went up in this decompression chamber and uh, then without oxygen. And they took us to 18,000 feet and then said, yeah, write your name and do this sum and all. And it took about 10 or 12 minutes before you were writing gibberish. Yes. Yep. Okay? Yep. So I suppose there was about five minutes where you were coherent and then another five minutes where you were a bit fuzzy and then finally blah. All I can say is that a lot of these guys in World War I who went that high um, were good for five or 10 minutes and then they come down again. I don't know what the duration of those old airplanes was. It probably wasn't super long. And of course they got involved in combat and had to come down. But also it is possible to train yourself. I mean, you these guys who, who climb Mount Everest, when you go back to Hillary's days, I mean, they had, they had oxygen there which they took a sniff of from time to time. Right. And nowadays modern climbers go to a base camp and live there for several weeks. On so it is possible for the haemoglobin in your bloodstream, which is what absorbs the, the oxygen, to increase. So if you put a person at a 10 or 12,000 foot environment for a couple of weeks, the nat body naturally increases the amount of hemoglobin, so it doesn't affect him as much. Yep. Right? Yep. So his tolerance is probably good to 25,000 feet before he starts writing gibberish. Right. Right. Okay, so we're now talking about with the odd whiff of oxygen, you can make it to the top of Mount Everest. That's my guess, there's a lot of exertion involved there too. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure a lot of the, 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 the problems that they had in those days, uh, in those old airplanes, once they started going that high, were just straight hypoxia. You know, pilots were seen to roll over and dive out of control for no good reason. Right. So they yep. just lost it completely. Yeah. And if they're sitting at um, 20,000 feet and they see the enemy at 10,000 or 5,000 feet below them or whatever, and they dived on that, yeah. would that not... Uh, Give you the sensation of the bends uh, going down that. No, 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 not really. Right? You get the bends going up. Oh, it's only not, going up. Yeah, not okay. like diving. Yeah. Diving has a problem. You go down when you're a diver, you can't hurry coming back up again. You yeah. get the bends. But the reverse is when you go up in an airplane, the quickest solution to all this is to come back down as quick as you can. Right. I had, I suppose, the incipient bend. I got pain in my left elbow on one of these flights which I realised was the early symptoms of this, so I just rolled over and came down the hill. Yeah. Uh, you know, we weren't normally up at 40 odd thousand feet for more than four or five minutes, just doing these pressurisation and oxygen checks and then doing the, the sidewinder launch check and then you'd roll it over and do a MAC run. And you'd point it downhill and, and take it supersonic to see how it trimmed. Remember I talked about how the aeroplane used to roll? Some would roll more than others, some would hardly roll at all. Yeah. Um, so you weren't up there for very long. But I... Uh, just on the same pressurization thing, because this was, was really interesting. I had another airplane, and I did the, the standard test, climbed it up there, did all the squeezing of the air, and this was most uncomfortable. I, I, I didn't enjoy this at all, because yeah. one had to be very sure what you ate for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, that would come out too. Now, this particular one, I decompressed it and sat there, and the horn wasn't blowing. So I started climbing a bit higher. I got to 42,000 feet when a little voice in my head said, don't go any higher, mate. 
Now I could feel the gentle pressure starting to come in the mask. Yeah. This is getting seriously high and there's no horn. So I did the MAC run, did the rest of the test, came back down and uh, said to these guys, the horn doesn't work. So they had a, a test kit they could put on and, and activate it on the ground. Yeah. Well, I didn't even blew the guy out of the cockpit. Oh. And he said, nothing wrong with the horn. <laughs> I said, well, I don't know. It didn't sound, you know, the guy already had this experience with the microphone, so I told him about that. And I said, maybe it's just not loud enough. And they all looked at me and said, you've got to be joking. Did you hear it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they rigged up, they jury-rigged this little little wire for me with a, a light and a button, which I could press. If I pressed the button, the horn would go off and the light would come on. If the horn came on by the automatic system, the light would also come on. So I could, I had a horn and a light automatically, or if I pressed the button, I could hear them. So, and this time I thought, right, I'll climb uncompressed, which was a better way. And from that point on, I started doing this. I just decompressed on the ground yeah. because you could sort of fart and belch gently on all the way up <laughs> in a controlled fashion. <laughs> and so I'm climbing and I'm pressing the button and bap, there's the light, there's bap, bap. And as I'm passing about 30,000 feet, the horn is getting incredibly faint. By 35, I'm pressing the button, I've got a light, I can't hear the horn. 38,000 feet, the light comes on saying automatic system has activated the horn, I can't hear it. And as I go, I thought, man, is it thin up here? So again, I went back down and I said, confirm the horn is not loud enough. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. So they pulled this horn out, they put it on the workbench at the other end of this Nissan hut working, and touched the battery to it, and nearly blew the windows out. And they said, it's got to be loud enough. I said, it's not. So I went and got a brand new one at a store and put it next to it. That's when I realised this one was twice it. I mean, it, it, it was painful. You had to sort of dive for cover. This thing is so exceptionally loud. You know, it's probably the loudest noise I've heard from that sort of electric device. And they all just threw themselves backwards and went, holy crap. <laughs> Never realised it. So, of course, they put this new horn in and it worked fine. You could hear it at 40,000 feet. Yep. Whereas on the ground, it was killing people. <laughs> yeah, it was almost like a secret weapon. Just you know, pressure pressurisation horn. So, again, it was reinforced just how thin the air is. And I'm sitting up there in a cotton flying suit. So that's separated from the outside world by the thin plastic bubble, you know, high in the sky. I remember, I think I might have mentioned way back when I was in Darwin, before even going to, uh, to Butterworth, I thought I'd see how high I could get a safe, and I got it about 50,000 feet above yeah. the tropopause there, because it, it's high in the tropics. And it was then later on with this experience, I suddenly thought back to that and thought, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, from the human body's point of view, you might as well be a spaceman because when you really go above those heights, uh, you have to have age. You have to have pressure jerkins and pressure suits and things. The body is in space. Yeah, might as well be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, they didn't just invent spacesuits for the, the space program. They some of the high altitude airplanes have been using full spacesuits for a long time. Well, exactly. That. The, yeah. the U2 and they the, the wear the spacesuits, yeah. don't they? And the F the the, uh, the XF15s and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that was that was the high altitude part of it. The other interesting part, and this was the, the boy race part of it, was really good. You also had to do, apart from doing all the all the systems checks and the hydraulic checks and you tick boxes and so forth. But the next part, of course, was uh, you, you do the, the the Mac run was to see how the Mac trim. In other words, you literally take your hands off and see how it rolled as it went transonic. Some rolled a moderate amount, some hardly at all. And I remember this one particular airplane, it didn't have any Mac roll at all. And I thought, wow, I never come to it. Just, we're just the perfect combination of, of two wings, right? Yeah. Because one of the other things we had to do was the high speed trim run at low level. And I meant low level, like a couple of hundred feet lower. Yeah. And as fast as you could go. Now, around Amberley, we, we, the Amberley Air Base also had an Army training unit there, a, a, aviation training. And they were using those days, they had Bell helicopters and and Cessna 180s. So the immediate vicinity of the the airbase was a sort of light aircraft training area. So you couldn't go blasting through that at high speed. You'd wind up wrapped around a, having a Cessna 180 wrapped around you. And by the end of the sortie where the airplane was light, you didn't want to go too far away because once you wound it up, you're really sucking the gas. So that was the last thing you did just before landing. So the, what is the best place to do a high speed run? Down the runway at 11,000 feet of concrete runway. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the, the excuse for beating the crap out of the airfield right? and that was great and, uh, and indeed there was a cross runway there which was only about 5,000 feet and our aircraft depot hangars were quite close to the threshold of that one 
So quite often I would do it down the cross runway and then step about 100 yards to the right and take it right across the top of the hangar. And the troops loved it because you know, they've been working on these aeroplanes for, 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 for months at a time to see it kind of hooking across the, the airfield uh, as fast as you could go. And of course the question is how fast could you really go? The Sabre was limited uh, in the book to 605 knots was the V&E. Yeah. But now there's no normal reason for that V&E. I mean, it wasn't a structural problem. It wasn't uh, straight handling or flutter or anything like that. It was all hydraulic. The reason was that this transonic wing roll would start to occur at low level and beyond that speed because 605 knots is Mach 0.91. Okay, yep. you do the sums on a, on a standard ice a day. And it was just above Mach 0.91, we get this wing roll tendency. Now, when you're doing a high altitude, even though you're doing Mach 0.91, you indicated airspeed is down I don't know, 300, 400 knots. So it's controllable. Yep. But when you're doing some 600 knots at dot feet, this wing roll, the higher indicated airspeed, the wing roll could be uncontrollable, or at least uncontrollable to the point where you already roll on your back before you catch it. Right. And if you're 100 feet doing 600 knots and suddenly flips on its back, there's a strong chance that you, know, you could hit something. So they put this 605 knot limit on it. And now this was all explained to me by Jim. I knew it wang rolled and all that, but he explained the reasons behind it all. So now I'm pretty au fait with the design characteristics of this airplane. Yeah. And I had this one particular airplane, which I said during the high altitude Mac runs, had experienced no wing roll at all. So I thought, then 605 knots doesn't apply to me. <laughs> How fast will it really go? So I got a clearance to stay on the main runway, and I started at 10,000 feet, about three miles off the main runway, and I just firewalled it and shoved the nose down, and from 10,000 feet, I leveled off at 100 feet at the threshold, and took it down the run, doing 625 knots, indicated at 100 feet. 11,000 foot worth of runway went past in about four or five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and I gotta say, it's the fastest I've ever been, especially at low level, and it was just amazing. The airplane just sat there smooth as silk. Awesome. Yeah, it was. 625 knots those is my speed record. Most modern airplanes at low level don't go any faster than that. I mean, I, I, we talked earlier on about mm. airplanes at air shows. People say, oh, yeah, the latest F-18s or the F-22s at, at the Ambly, at the, sorry, at the, at the Avalon air show. Yeah, it was, it was faster than all the others. It wasn't really. They don't go much faster than 600 knots for the same problem, apart from smashing windows everywhere. Yeah. So at air shows, you don't see anything faster than we could do in a Sabre. Yes, they can at high altitude in their, in their roll, but nowhere near the ground. And of course, the next thing was you'd hit the end of the runway at, uh, at, uh, at 625 knots, in this case, or 605 in most of the airplanes. Then what do you do? Well, you, you can't go any further beyond that because there might be a Cessna 180 out there. So you'd haul the stick back at about 6 Gs and point it vertical and then shove the stick over and roll. And uh, I reckon you get about 16 rolls in the vertical. Wow. We'd go to 25,000 feet straight up because the, the rate of roll was incredibly fast. And it was just a blur. I never really counted them totally, but just round, 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 round up into the sky. And then you cap off at about 25,000 feet, pull it over the top, just set sort of loop angle attack and pull it over on its back. Power off, speed breaks off, and come back down, join initial and land. The whole thing was over in about three or four minutes. Yeah, whoosh, it's back on the ground. <laughs> And Jim always came to visit me after those. Good one, Noel. <laughs> he really enjoyed it. I, th I think he actually had a hotline to the tower, so they called him when I was going to do it because he seemed to be out there every time. Yeah. He really enjoyed sort of well, flying and watching me fly these airplanes. Yeah. And it was really, it was really cool. Yeah. So we, uh, we, uh, the, the rest of the time, I won't say it was boring. It was interesting from my point of view, my personal point of view, because I'm learning so much more about the machinery and talking to the guys in the hangars. So that's when I got. I got this idea that I really like this this test flying business. Yeah. Pretty cool. There's, there's another aspect to maybe my future. I don't know. And of course, I was having all these long conversations with Jim, and he's explaining things in much more detail than I ever had before. And it was really good. But I still had time. You know, there would be some occasions where it was a whole day or two days where I had nothing to do because the airplanes weren't ready. I finished that one, nothing to do. I would take them, the new ones, down to to Williamtown, as I say. Forty-five minutes was my record. Yeah. And I would, uh, I'd hang around down at Williamtown all day and go and visit the squadron, talk to my old buddies and so forth and find out where the next FCI course was on just in case. You know? yeah, yeah. And then I'd go and pick up an old dog and fly at home. And I remember I mentioned old dogs before. I had uh, two interesting incidents uh, flying old ones home, which also one of them Jim didn't know about. Now, this was a classic. It really was. 
the, uh, the Sabre has a hydraulic nose wheel steering. There's a little button on the front of the stick, you hold it in and that engages the nose wheel steering and you steer it with the pedals like any Cessna. Yep, no problem. You press the right pedal, it turns right, press the left pedal, it turns right. So went down, signed off for this one, got in it, cranked it up, started the taxi out, pressed the right pedal, it turned left. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Gently pressed the left pedal, it turned right. So I stopped, looked around, yeah, with, with great thought. I got it off the main taxiway back onto the tarmac outside the aircraft, the, the, the maintenance thing, and shut it down. And of course, the sergeant in charge came, what's the problem, sir? I said, um... The nose wheel steering appears to be connected back. Oh, bullshit, it's not possible. Yeah, we've got this can, it only goes on one way. And I said, I don't know. So we got out. And before I'd even got out of the airplane, he's underneath looking up in the nose wheel well, and all I hear from him is, bloody hell! <laughs> LAC blog, get your ass <laughs> LAC blogs, had somehow managed to put this non-reversible valve plate on back the front. <laughs> It took him about 10 minutes to fix it, unbolt it and turn it around, put it on the right way. And sort of last seen the sergeant kicking this LAC's <laughs> butt packet. <laughs> I thought, oh, good. This was fairly early. I thought, what else am I going to encounter? <laughs> on, the, uh, on another flight, I don't remember exactly when in this whole period it was, but um, I'm flying this airplane home. And again, I'm now coming into Amberley Air ba- Airspace, so I'm sitting above the air traffic controller's space below me. Yep. And from about halfway home, you know, I'm past my point of safe return, if you like, I had a, a hydraulic failure light come on. Oh, it had twin hydraulic systems, so I just selected the other system. And everything worked fine. But then I noticed on the gauge that the, the, the failed one hadn't actually failed. It was still saying hydraulic pressure, just the light had come on. Okay. And the next thing, after a few minutes, I get a generator failed light, but the ammeter is still showing that it's charging. Uh, what's going on here? So I'm, I'm searching for circuit breakers. You couldn't read the labels on the circuit breakers. You stuck your hand behind you and just patted all the circuit breakers. And if they're out, you push them in. Yeah. And then I started to have other little funny indications. And it was like sitting in a simulator with the instructor playing silly buggers and turning, you know, d- giving you... And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And then I start to notice that the canopy is starting to ice up, mist up. And you have on the side of the canopy this thing they call a trombone. It was just this slide valve. You flick it forward, this long thing, and it would just blast air around inside. And it came straight off the tenth stage of the compressor, and it just blasted everywhere, and just demist instantly. Huh? I cracked this open to demist, and there's no air coming out. Odd. I now look down at my cabin altitude, and it's going up rapidly. And the next thing, blap, the warning horn goes off. I'm now unpressurized. Um, with no demisting air, I'm sitting at 40,000 feet with all these funny light shows, like Christmas lights coming on the cockpit, yeah. indicating a failure, except nothing's actually failed. And I must, I don't know how long I sat there thinking, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> Until I then suddenly realised that I'm starting to seriously ice up inside the cockpit. I can't see out. It's a, again, it's a perfectly blue day. I've actually got 10 minutes instrument flying in my logbook. I reckon it was actual instrument flying because I could not see outside the cockpit at all. So now I'm thinking, well, I've got to come down. Not, you know, the oxygen regulator is working fine. So I personally, you know, lung-wise, from what we talked about, I could have sat there for longer. But I can't see. I mean, it's starting to get quite thick. And normally, it's just the moisture that you breathe out. Yeah. And you you sort of, everything you take in, you breathe out through through the mask and it goes into the cabin and it just builds up. As you well know, you get in a motor car and turn the, the outside vent off and on a cold day and see how quickly you, you missed up. Exactly. Yeah. Well, of course, it's just, once it's missed, it freezes. Yeah. So I'm trying to do a fuel sum to decide when I can safely descend without running out of gas. And it was, oh, still 15 minutes out of Ambly. I could drop down to 10,000 feet and slow down. I thought I might have to actually open the canopy and get some air circulating here. So, of course, I go on the radio and say, hey, I've got to make a descent negative, you know, the air traffic and the airliners and all the rest of it. And I thought, okay, I've heard this phrase before, I'm going to use it. Pan, pan, fucking pan. <laughs> I am descending. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I cruised it on down to about 10,000 feet, and I'd done the sums, yeah, I was going to make it because it was clear weather at the other end, and slowed down to uh, canopy opening speed, which is, I vaguely recall, is about 200 knots, somewhere about the gear flap speed anyway, and opened the canopy and, and demisted the whole thing. So here I'm an open cockpit saver at 10,000 feet for about the last 15 minutes of my flight home, having just logged 10 minutes of instrument flight. On the <laughs> so I got there, I closed the canopy for landing because now I'm low enough and it's all, it's all fine. 
But I still can't figure out what the hell's going on here. Taxied in, and as this guy's marching in, you can see this look on his face as he's looking at the side of the airplane like this, oh my God, look. By the time I shut down, there's a dozen people standing around staring at the side of the airplane. I get out, and here is this charred area on the side of the fuselage. Okay. All the paint has blistered off. It's got super duper hot down inside there. But my fire warning system did not activate. I may have mentioned this earlier on when we talked about the Sabre. You had two fire warning lights. An aft fire warning light, there was two of them, one above the other. The bottom one was the aft fire warning light. If that comes on, you stop, clock the engine immediately and prepare for an ejection if the light fire doesn't go out. And if it does go out, which it probably would if you turned off all the fuel, then you've got to go glide somewhere. If the forward fire warning light comes on, you have 10 seconds to eject before the engine blows up. Right. Okay? okay? There was no argument. Forward fire warning light, bang, you're out of there. I didn't have any forward, any, any warning lights at all. Fortunately, if they'd have come on, I would have been out of there. Yeah. Because I was quite confused as to what was happening. As it turned out, the hose which connects to the solid hose, big flexible metal tubey thing, which connected to the side of the engine, which took the hot air straight off the 10th stage of the compressor, not, not the burnt air, but just before it goes into the, the burners. That's what provides all the air pressurization system inside the cabin. Yep. It had broken off from its mountings. Oh, okay. Right? So the hot air coming off the 10th stage through about a three inch hole is blowing straight sideways into the airframe, straight onto an electrical terminal block, mm. which it had melted and caused all these lights to sh- come on and the system to short out and actually had cooked the inside of the, of, of the fuselage to the point where all the paint on the outside had blistered. So I had a mini fire going on down there. It also happened to be right where a forward fire warning light wire was. Why didn't it come on? Uh, <clears throat> uh, that seems like that was unserviceable, sir. Ooh, hell. So as it turned out, you know, the airplane was actually working okay. Otherwise, I would have been out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a weird one. That sounds like one of your nine lives, almost. Yeah, yeah, but uh, so it, it's 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 the most memorable ten minutes of instrument flying because uh, I mentioned we used to log every five minutes because you'd go up and down through the cloud, but you never in it. Yeah. So if you could if you could amass ten hours of instrument flying per year doing this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this was this was a really strange one, um, and that occurred somewhere halfway through the thing. But they're probably the only two sort of really incidents that I had in ferrying the old ones up there. This was the worst one of the lot. Um, and it sort of, and that that was weird. I just didn't know most of the, most of the time. You sort of you could you knew what was happening and what to do about it. And this time I was I was completely confused. So yes, I would have punched out if uh, if the, well, either of the lights had come on. I think because I just I knew something was wrong. When you think about that, Noel, um, it's lucky that that happened to you on that flight because the flight before that would have been a squadron um, person well, who, who may have been a junior, maybe. not as experienced. Yes, so. maybe, maybe. I, I look, I don't know. I used to pick up the airplanes from the maintenance depot at, at the airfield, not directly from the squadron. Right. Okay. The maintenance depots had the middle level. You know, the squadron would do the, the, the pre-flights and, and, and sort of the A, B and, and C servicing. Then they'd go to the maintenance depot for the called the D servicing, which was like the 100 alleys, right? Yep. And then when it was scheduled for the E servicing, they, they, it might have been sitting there for a week or so where they'd swapped a few things around before giving it to me to take up there. So yeah. who knows what had been swapped around and what had been left disconnected. True, yeah, yeah. I don't know, and no one would admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> nope, not me, I didn't touch it there. <laughs> yeah. So it may never have been that way in squadron ops. Right, um, right. I don't know. There was no actual way of testing the fire system as such, except the press button, which checked the electrical thing. But actually the, the fire wires themselves, they either worked or they didn't work, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's about all I can say about the Sabre testing as such. But my time there then suddenly got very interesting. And it, it, it got interesting very quickly because within about a couple of months, something else came up. Okay. I've been sharing this office with Jeff and Brian, who were the Canberra crew. We got to know each other pretty well. And we always had plenty of time to talk and chat and do our paperwork, tick the boxes and all the rest of it. And I used to wander around the Canberra hangar and have a look at these big, ugly aeroplanes. Well, not ugly, no, I'll take that back. Externally, they were quite a pretty aeroplane. Internally, they were a good British ugly cockpit. Yeah. Never really liked British cockpits and the Canberra proved that to me. Anyway, Jim Rollins came down one day and uh, he's standing in the middle of the office with his back to me talking to Jeff because his desk was at the other end. He said, Jeff, you and... Uh, and Brian are being posted back to the to the bomber wing to be instructors. 
And of course they're saying, oh, what's going on? Why? Well, Vietnam's in full swing. And of course the two squadron, Canberra squadron, is now up in Vietnam. And they've got to rotate pilots up there and they need to increase their training rate and they're short of instructors. So you're off. Oh, great, good, because I'm getting a bit bored with, they've been there about 18 months, and so I'm getting a bit bored with doing their thing. They want to get back and do some operational flying. Yep. So they're very happy. And I'm sort of, I'm, I'm looking at Jim Rowland's back and I said, um, sir, who's going to do the Canberra testing? And he spun around, looked at me and said, you've got a week to get checked out, Noel. <laughs> and that is where I'd like to leave this at this stage because that's a whole different thing to talk about um, so maybe we can pick that up on the next interview as to my days as a a sprog Canberra test pilot <laughs> absolutely it sounds like a great place to leave well thank okay. you very much Noel. right that was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Hopewood